Super Talk Mississippi media production. Taylor Swift is coming to New Orleans, and Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and Super Talk are giving away a free pair of tickets. For your chance to win, go register now at Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and get your name in for the final drawing from Margaritaville and Super Talk 103.1. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone. Meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi minute. That's right. Hey, hey, all coming to you from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful studio, which is something that really matters to me. Today's guest has had a very successful run in the music business and continues to impact as he just won't slow down. His latest endeavor as co-founder of Creative Dreams and Music Network, along with Music City Pioneer and partner, the great Rose Drake, whose mission is to seek and nurture the talents of upcoming artists while also highlighting the work of artistic legends from a variety of creative backgrounds. Creative and Dreams calls my guest their music man, and that's exactly what he is, and the name suits him well. For more than 40 years, he's worked in various roles in the music industry as a musician, music producer, radio DJ, songwriter, lecturer, marketing and promotion consultant, and A&R expert, music publisher, music lobbyist, which is this day and age is so important, music business historian, artistic development mentor, and government relations professional. He's held senior management positions with EMI Records in Italy and England, which I just got through visiting, both of them in the last year, where he worked with such superstars as Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones, Queen, Elton John, Deep Purple, it list goes on and on, even Michael Jackson. I don't think I need to get say any more do any more introduction because i've got him on the horn my man meet sir fred cannon hey fred good day good day steve i like the sir part like sir nick faldo that's right except mine was by the pope Pope benedict really okay tell me about that oh my goodness um my i was doing some work in washington as you know protecting copyright and while i was doing that um i heard that being a Catholic, that the nuns in Israel were being exploited or taken advantage of by the Israeli government. So I took on a chore free of charge to help them keep their convents from the uh, Israeli taxation group that was trying to push them out of their convents. So by doing that, I was able to get in the good graces of His uh, Holiness, Pope Benedict, and uh, united me for my work. We're talking to Sir Fred Cannon. All right, Fred, we got to go back to the beginning a little bit. I got to understand your background. Obviously, starting as a musician, take me back the the, the little guy before he was a sir. No, uh, I 
actually started growing up in Mississippi, in Meridian. I was born in Meridian, and we left yep. when I was five. We went on vacation, spent a year in Italy, and then my father got a job with the U.S. government in Naples, Italy, to build a base there, and they stayed there 36 years. And I actually started my career in the music business by hitchhiking in 1962 to Sweden and then eventually got to Hamburg, where I became a roadie and tried to get in the club. He had to be 18 to get in the club, so I used to carry the Beatles instruments and other groups that were playing in these clubs carry their instruments as a roadie so I could get in the clubs. Wow. you got to be my beginning. No, that's my beginning. <laughs> so then from there, I became a sound guy, like a roadie sound guy, and <laughs> just moved up the ranks. You bring an interesting point. I think in any line of work, especially our line of work, it's good to know every aspect of it because you appreciate the people that are doing those things later, those hard, sweaty get, you know, jobs that you do. What was it like carrying the Beatles instruments? I mean, was it a time when they were on fire? Were they just starting out? What was the deal? No, it was their second trip to Hamburg, and they were playing in uh, various clubs there. But they were on fire in the sense they really entertained a lot. You have to understand that these locations that they were playing in were really rip-off joints to get people to come in, the sailors coming off ships to come and have fun with the ladies and dance and consume lots of drinks. So um, the owner, Bruno, at the time was pushing them to play for three hours at a time yeah. to keep people dancing. <laughs> I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Except my, and, and that three hours. Lots of beverage. Yeah, you know, listen, listen, my th those three hours were my four hours because it was four for us in the Delta. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, trust me. And it's hotter, too. <laughs> oh, it was so hot. That's all right, though. I, it kept me in shape. Uh, we're talking to Sir Fred Canada. Uh, Fred, so you, you do this, obviously. Where, when does it start to develop where you're looking at your life and going like, you know, this could become a career? Because you, you've done so much, obviously, with my intro. Um, I mean, that, that takes seven lifetimes to do what you've done in one, and you're still not done yet. So when does it really start to turn into something real for you? Well, um, that was at the age of 12, which I was able to get away from home and hitchhike up there and do this. 12. So every summer from the age of 12, I went touring with somebody I knew, some band somewhere. Uh, so I, I toured Germany, Holland, Belgium, London, uh, went all over the place as a roadie, and got to meet just about everybody in the music business because everybody was on the road then. So coming from there, I used to go back to Italy for my school year. And while I was in Italy in 1965, a club opened in Rome, Italy, called the Piper Club. And I, because I knew all these bands, I was able to meet the owner. And at 15, I started booking acts at the Piper Club in Rome and bringing them from England and Germany and so forth. And... I got into the business of booking, and I was 15 years old, and my parents didn't know what I was doing. They didn't know where the money was coming from, but I was having a good time, and I knew everybody then. And from there, my connections just kept spreading, and eventually I got into EMI Records in Rome, and I'm making this short, um, to where my first project sold 3.5 million copies, and it was their first big hit ever from the EMI Italy company. And that's when you're doing A&R. Yes, sir. So for people that don't they, understand they, A&R, let's, let's tell it. Well, first of all, 
you'll, you'll appreciate this. My introduction was I was supposed to be a promotion guy. But then the first day of work, they said, no, we're transferring you to A&R. And I said, what's that? And I said, it's artists and recording. And I said, okay, all right. He said, what, what do I do? And they said, find a great act and sell records. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so I've always known it as artists and repertoire. So well, artists it, and it, records, yeah. It, you know. It's what it is, it's right? putting the two together. <laughs> Well, you got to have one to get signed when you get labeled, you know, so that was who we were targeting for me as well. So don't think, don't think, but finally it was Keith Stegall. It's funny about Keith, you know, uh, he produced Alan Jackson and wrote We're in the Slub Together with Roger Murr. And I was, uh, Roger had brought me to Keith first at Mercury Records. And it was, I bet it was six or seven years later when Keith, who I thought would be the last person that would ever sign me, ended up being the only person that ever signed me. So he was my guy. And uh, well, I, I remember, I remember when you got signed. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, it's wild, wild, wild. It feels like uh, seventeen lifetimes ago. Oh, I love him so much. Our, our mutual friend Rick Sanchek was my first manager in Nashville and publisher. That's that's right. Wow, I'm gonna have him I on the there. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Fred, so you go, you're yep. doing EMI. How long are you doing the? How long are you in Italy? I'm in Italy for three years, and during that period, I was able to bring Motown to EMI Records Europe, and uh, that was a big thing. And I was able to be involved with "Songs in the Key of Life" by Stevie Wonder, and wow, some of the Diana Ross, a movie, "Mahogany in Rome." So I was really getting my name out there, and so EMI London decided to put me a test. They gave me Save the Venice concert for Paul McCartney in 1976, and I pulled that through as a miracle, and they moved me to London after that concert. Wow. We're talking so about... I was at EMI London, which was the key place, and within one year, they gave me Harvest Records, and within one year... I had outsold singles wise everybody had run harvest previously. Then they moved me to EMI Records as commercial director, which was a title they made up for me because I was very commercial. And um, hmm. I stayed there six months. My first hit in January of '78 was Kate Bush, Weathering Heights. My follow up to that was. We are the champions by Queen, and so forth and so forth. <laughs> Once you have bought a small record, we're with Sir Fred Cannon. We're in the Keep Mississippi Beautiful studios. We're going to be right back. Humble beginnings all the way back to 1943. Guarantee Bank has grown from offering the basic banking services and products to serving customers with a comprehensive, complete line of expertise and products only expected at much larger institutions. We are proud to be your local big-time bank. So when you're looking for a bank you can truly depend on and trust, and like me so many years ago trying to find my way around, let Guarantee Bank, with its 17 convenient locations, help you on your journey and become a wonderful addition to your family like they have mine for over 30 years. Guarantee Bank, member FDIC. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. 
right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm back with Sir Fred Cannon, born in Meridian, yes, Mississippi. Meridian. I yes, love sir. it. Been there. Actually, we recorded our one Mississippi song there, Fred, that I wrote for uh, Governor Bryant for the Bicentennial. We were the first act to ever record in the Governor Studios with our dear friend Marty Gamlin. And uh, it was a blast. And so that was, uh, I was glad to be a part of, of a little history, breaking that studio in and uh, bringing my boys from all over in. And it was awesome. So, uh, Fred, so do you ever, yeah. did you ever spend time getting back? And I have two questions. One, to getting back to Mississippi. And two, you know you lived a long time overseas. I'm hearing nothing but just a Mississippi accent, sort of. So where, wh- well, why didn't you develop any sort of accent while you were in, growing up as a kid? Well, when I moved to London, I spent 18 years there, and obviously I went to American schools in Italy through the uh, American Dependent School System. Gotcha. But uh, I never left my Mississippi accent. I tried to keep it because what you need to understand is that every time I met somebody in the music business, from McCartney to anybody, they would all say, where are you from in America? And I'd say Mississippi, and they'd go, oh, my gosh, do you know Elvis? Do you know B.B. <laughs> King? And Elvis went on and on and on. So I never wanted to lose that accent because it. it was really a, a great trophy for me to carry around in my back pocket. You know, it's interesting you say that. When I'd go off off and play, when I started to play nationally and stuff, people, especially around the East Coast, uh, New York City and Jersey and all that, they would look at me like I'm one of theirs, and then I would open my mouth, and they go, what happened to you? <laughs> and I said, hey, hey, Mississippi happened, baby. So anyway, it was always a blessing. You're, you're so right about that, because being the birthplace of American music uh, and and it is uh, just so many genres. Uh, we were just in Liverpool giving uh, the blues a blues trail marker number two hundred six, I believe it was, to the city of Liverpool for the British invasion. Which, if you think about it, you had a lot to do with all of that. Uh, and uh, you know, you know, you definitely have your fingerprints on that. And you're from Mississippi, and it was pretty dang cool. Really cool, well, cool town. Let, let, let me add one more element to that. Because I became unforgettable because, number one, I was from Mississippi. And number two, my name was Freddie Cannon. And so everybody was going like, Tallahassee Lassie. Well, yeah. and they started playing all the songs for me. But I said, no, his real name was Frank Piccarillo. Uh, I love it. You're the real, you're the original and real Freddie Cannon. That's exactly Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Okay, so Fred, you're going to – how old are you when you're – when you're doing, uh, you're having all this success, and they're calling you the commercial guy. They're creating roles because you've got this knack for for knowing hit artists and hit songs. Uh, how long does that last before you, uh, you know, take an adventure sort of uh, and get involved in politics? Well, uh, I had my own label for eight years, which I kept about five percent of the British market. Then I moved over and joined Pete Waterman, and we sold probably about 400 million records in six years. Oh, my gosh. And then I decided that the British music scene was getting kind of low-end, and I moved to the States. I brought my kids back, moved them to Boonville, Mississippi, and what? wound up in New York through Frances Preston, who you knew well. Yeah. And she decided to make me their legislative liaison, which I'd never really done before, but I had a poli-sci degree 
which I'd gotten years before at Whittier College. Okay, so go take go back backwards first to Booneville, Mississippi. Why Booneville? Which, by the way, I used to put. We used to play North State basketball tournaments up in Ballin, so we were up in that right. area. Why Booneville? Because my parents lived there, ah. and I wanted to get back close to my parents. They were getting old. I just wanted to spend some time with them. Um, they had been in Italy for years, and I've been traveling the world, so it was time to go back home and you know, reestablish the roots a little bit and make sure my kids grew up in a safe and wonderful place. So I did the same thing. We moved back for the same reasons and exactly the same thing as far as our kids. And, and we were in a safe place, but I felt like they needed to find a sense of their purpose. And, and moving back home to the Delta, uh, and I wanted them to experience what I, what I experienced, the feeling I had, you know. And, uh, right. and it, it totally... It totally is like injecting it into their veins, into their souls, and it's made a big difference. So I love that. You and I did the same thing, which is uh, people should go back home. They should experience that, full, come in that full circle and seeing your home from a different perspective after you've gone off and done some cool things. Uh, and, and you come back, and it just it's amazing how different it looks and feels. In a, in a, it doesn't mean it's better, uh, but it's just... Uh, you appreciate it more. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Steve, to the point, um, when I came back, I looked for the Musicians Hall of Fame in Mississippi, and there wasn't one. And so I decided to campaign in 1998 with Chip Pickering to start the Mississippi Walk of Fame and the Hall of Fame, which Hall of Fame I actually did not create on my own, but the Walk of Fame was my idea. Wow. So, that's so uh, cool. Marty Gamlin and I and our wonderful Paul Ott was yeah. there, and we really worked over 20 years on this project wow. to create what we have today. Okay, and what is it? Because uh, I don't know a lot about this, and of course the passing of Paul Ott was sad, a sad day that all of Mississippi mourned. I can tell you that. I love that man. Uh, what? What? Uh, so, what was the? What were your obstacles? Tw- you know. 20 years, how long did it go before you got the first off the ground and all that? Well, uh, I think it was 18 years after we started, we got the first shovel in the ground. But our obstacles were Katrina and Rita. Hmm. Yeah, well, those are pretty big They took all the money that we were going to hopefully get from the state legislature. Um, They took it all. And obviously... There was a priority there that needed to be addressed. Of course, of course, we did. And when Katrina happened, came in Nashville. We did. Uh, I just had my first hits. I think uh, it was Monday, uh, Monday, and then waiting on Joe. And then uh, we did uh, a benefit at the University of uh, Mississippi, where we uh, it was a bunch of us. That's where I met one of my favorite people ever, Cat Cora, who was from Jackson area, and uh, she, you know, the Iron Chef. And I, I'd gotten, <laughs> I'd gotten so hooked on the Food Network, on the back of the bus. Uh, and I just I fell in love with cooking, and we 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 always loved to cook, but we didn't know how to really cook, and uh, right. always an ever evolving thing. Uh, and but my wife and I, and then our, our kids, we just we, we they saw us cooking our whole life. So we would decide when I got off the road, we were going okay, what are we going to cook? We'd plan the two three days of meals before I had to get back on the bus, and uh, it was like the best. And it was you know, cat was one of those reasons. So I, she's she opens this door like she's coming out of a phone booth. She comes out of this thing like Superwoman, and she's. Uh, it, it, but it, but it was it led to the kitchen, and so she was catering the entire deal. And I just came. I ran up to her and I said, "Look, 
I am a fan. And um, you don't understand. You keep me uh, alive in the back of the bus and, and, and my cold back frigid bus when we're on the highway and every road looks the same. You have right. been like, a, you know, anyway. Anyway, so we became good friends and she did my catfish Christmas video and I love her so much. But anyway. All right. So, Fred, Fred, let's talk about um, what do you think made you aware of the talent and songs that would impact and not only impact emotionally, but sell? Well, I think my upbringing in multicultural societies like Italy, France, Germany, where I was traveling when I was really young, um, I learned melodies and I learned what hooks were and I learned um, kind of by watching people what they reacted to, especially in clubs. I did a lot of clubs in the good old days and you could tell when somebody turned on a song or started playing a song, how people would react to them. And that really stimulated me to learn what people wanted. And um, I'm telling you, um, it's been very good to me. (laughs) I don't want to lose it. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's in our veins. I mean, it's in our being. Uh, We've both been doing a long time. It's the, it's still to my prayers. You know, I, our foundations, the, the Steve Azar St. Cecilia Foundation, the Patron Saint of Music. Man, I'm using it all to keep going because <laughs> I love it. I still love it. I still I feel like I'm a much better writer than I was, and I love writing alone. Uh, and, and coming back home made me write alone again and after experiencing all that. So it's been a blessing getting to do that and continue to get to work. And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel like we're just sort of getting started. There's a reality out there with the streaming and all of that. And what's your perspective on on sales versus streaming and and how you have to adapt now well i gotta tell you unless you tour now you don't make any money Um, unfortunately the rate you get for streaming is almost non-existent and it's a travesty of the record industry that we don't get enough money to survive unless you go on the road you're not going to survive in this business i want to talk more about that in the next segment we're with sir fred cannon you get to play DJ. That's part of the deal on my show. So would you oh, like good. to, you know, we're the birthplace of American music. You know it. So would you like to hear a little, you have one or the other, Conway Twitty or Ike Turner? Conway Twitty. There it is. We're with Sir Fred Cannon. You're in Mississippi Minute to keep Mississippi beautiful studios. We're rolling. I want to hear some Baby, believe me, I understand. When it comes to love, you want to so The news doesn't sleep, and neither do we. Fox News Radio, late breaking, up to the minute, from around the world, around the clock, here on Super Talk Mississippi. Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm back with Sir Fred Cannon in the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studio. You guys see anybody litter? Just, just you know, report them. <laughs> anyway, hey, uh, so Fred, yes, sir. You talk about streaming, and I don't want to get all. Uh, I'm looking for a word. Uh, you know. It's just, it's a tough 
Yeah, I don't know if it's controversial as much as upset, <laughs> but right. I'm disappointed. So as a songwriter, and I watch a lot of my pals who just write songs, okay? I mean, I go yep. out and entertain, and I'm able to continue uh, to make a living doing that, and, and I know that that's, uh, that's, that's so important. Record labels have decided that they're going to take a piece of, as an artist, they're going to take a piece of your live. They, they never touched our live before, and now they're having right. to. Um, where did we go wrong? Because I had my first hit when Napster... And they brought me to DC as one of the most illegally downloaded records. I don't know exactly what the 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 exact well, term was, but that was tough on me to to be my my first hit finally after my whole life. I'm 37, and as an artist, I finally have a song I wrote and recorded that you know on my whole album. I'm ready to go. I've I've overcome a bad first album and and nightmare, and I've gotten that chance. And it's and I've waited my whole life for this, and all of a sudden there's this thing. That people are, you know, that college kids and kids growing up, which, heck, who knows, I might have done that. But the bottom line was that's where it started. Where did we right. go wrong? When did, with, well, with the legislation? The, 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 I, I think I was part of that whole consequence, which happened when um, the record company folks got together with the PROs in New York City. And I'm talking about 1996 here. And Francis Preston, my boss, was urging the whole industry to make a deal with Napster. She said, I don't care what kind of money we get, but we need to have a deal confirming our rights, because if we don't protect our rights, we're going to lose in the end. Um, Al Teller from MCA Universal right. at the time said, there's no way we're giving away our stuff for little pence on the dollar. Um, and he said, I'm not going to let it happen. So he voted against it, and they couldn't find a compromise, and the rest is history. Wow. Nobody got a deal for years, and basically we got screwed. That's unbelievable. And now they're talking, you know, uh, I know Apple. Well, Apple's always been good to, uh, as far as I'm concerned because they created a, uh, an avenue for sales and with iTunes. And then obviously when they saw the writing on the wall, uh, why would you? Why do you have to own it? You don't have anything physical. It's not like a physical piece of product that you're that you're holding, uh, and that well, you're getting to grab. And now, now they're doing it. But they're they're okay with the forty four percent. But the, everybody's got to realize forty four percent is divided among all artists. They, you know, and that's right. not. But but I know that that there's some, there's some uh, stream streaming companies fighting it. And right now, we're I think we're closing in on fifteen percent. But it's a uh, it's a weird deal, you know. But 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 let, let me just say something, and I'm going to get real controversial here. All right, come on with it. The major record companies are controlling the negotiations. They're getting a bigger slice than all the songwriters and publishers, small publishers, are getting. So because they control the marketplace, like if you go to iTunes and if I'm Universal and I say I'm not going to give you my catalog, they're going to give you more and more money to get it because they have it. Yeah. And because they control the industry as a monopoly, they're getting the benefits that we should be getting. All right, let me ask you this. Independent artists have been making a huge breakthrough and still do, right? Uh, uh, you know, right. You, you talk about acts that can play live. I mean, I think that the best independent artists have come from that background. So, so that's, that's no matter what, you can bring it. But at some point, you... you I think that you're seeing now the independent artists were on the rise 
and now they're being swallowed up by the big labels because of what you just said. So I, I absolutely, yeah. And let me tell you, that goes back to when I was in London. They were doing the same thing then. The independent groups would come into the charts and they'd buy them right away, and just buy market share. That's what they do. Yeah, because they can, and they have the relationships yeah. with radio, and it can get bigger for that artist. And all of a sudden, not only radio, but all the dis- digital distribution platforms. Right. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's just really just wild. Uh, how, where I mean, we are. If the Justice Department really opened their eyes and wanted to take on the big labels, it would really give us a lot of support. All right, let's talk about what you're doing now, because what you're doing now is battling what you used to be, where I used to be. You know, we're, we, were, we were involved with the Dragons. We were there, right? And now we're now now we a little bit more of David, not Goliath. So, tell me with your new endeavor, uh, you know, how, how do you go about your day and how do you go about your mission? Okay, my mission is to educate new upcoming artists to the realities of the music industry because everybody thinks it's pie in the sky, as you know, and they really have to work for it. Number one, number two. Like I said before, they probably are only going to make money going on the road. So that's one concept that they really have to nurture and get good at, because if they're not good on the road, they're not going to survive. Right. Number two, I always try to make and produce great records for them. Something that I say you can always be proud of when you grow to be 50. So that's what we're really trying to do here is educate young upcoming artists who think that the world's going to drop at their feet, which it isn't. And number two, that they have quality product out there to promote. And if they are signed by the majors, so be it. But honestly, we just want to make good product and educate people about the real issues of the industry because they're so naive out there. Right, right. Let's talk about exactly that now and dig a little deeper. You and Rose Drake partners for how long oh we've known each other 44 years and we've been partners for seven all right let's talk about rose's past because you can tell it better than than i can for sure and then most uh her history is just vast well rose was a a young lady who grew up in nashville tennessee was in love with hank williams used to go to the grand Ole opry uh eventually met pete drake who she married and went to work for but before she married, she worked for him for about probably seven or nine years, I think. But eventually they married, and she ran two studios for Pete and eight publishing companies and two recording labels. Mm. Wow. And she was the administrator in charge. Wow. That's so you know what that entails. For a woman in that period of time, you got to understand this is 60s, 70s, and 80s. Oh, no, I know. Uh, it's quite a burden. Just had David and Karen Conrad on. And talking to, okay. to Karen about that, uh, I, I talked about going to see 9 to 5. My wife and I, Gwen and I, went in London, uh, went to see Dolly Parton's you know, production of 9 to 5. And, sure. and and obviously, as a kid, you're growing up, and you're so excited about it. And it was great. You, you remember the movie because you know, Dolly's Dolly, and she's awesome. And, sure. and this movie was incredible. But as a kid, you don't notice what women were going through back then. And now, now looking back after all this Me Too movement and the Weinstein and Epstein, and whatever stain the bottom line is that you you really look at at that and go you think you know as having a as being a a son to a, a great mom 
having a great mother-in-law and then having a great bride and then having a daughter. You're going like, who would treat my baby girl like that? You know, I'd come off the top ropes. So uh, she was in a time and a period where you're exactly right. Not a lot of respect, right? Not that, but, you know, it was a man's world. And I know three outstanding women who really took on the men's, uh, let's say, den in Nashville. And that, they, they were, you know, Rose Drake, Francis Preston, and uh, Connie Bradley. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, three. They they really kind of put women on a map in Nashville. And three. the lady who ran the Country Music um, Hall of Fame, um, huh. Meadow Walker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you imagine how tough those women had to be during that period. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you, like Francis used to say, I surround myself with men all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. You know what's yeah. funny about that, everybody? It's a man's world. I've never felt like it was a man's world ever. You know, when I'm with, with my wife or my daughter, you know, like I said, my mother and mother-in-law and, and my sisters. and anyway, anyway, you know, I respect them so much that it's like I could never imagine it being any other way. And it could obviously be my upbringing, watching my dad, watching my father-in-law to treat their wives and, and family and, and, and people in general of color, uh, of any color. Um, I was blessed to be able to be around great mentors in that regard where you just don't see it. And, and also growing up down in the Delta, you know, we were around all sorts of religious diversities and sure. it, it just didn't matter then. And it doesn't matter to me now. I love great people that do good people, great people that do great things. And, and that's what well, it's all about. I, I owe a lot to Frances Preston who I met through the world music awards where I invited her because I was the supervising producer uh, in 1994, and after she saw me deal with Michael Jackson, she says, you definitely have to come work for me. <laughs> so she said, I'm going to figure out a role for you, and I'll call you about it. And I thought she was joking, but she really did. And she was a fantastic mentor to me and really guided me through my first years at BMI. We were Sir Fred Cannon. You're in Mississippi Minute to keep Mississippi beautiful studios. news doesn't sleep and neither do we fox news radio late breaking up to the minute from around the world around the clock here on super talk mississippi in a mississippi minute with steve azar right here on super talk mississippi highway one on my way down some fever trail Eating on an Ed's barbecue outside. I'm back with Sir Fred Cannon in the Keep Mississippi Beautiful studio. Okay, so let's talk about Michael Jackson and working with him. You know, what capacity and what was he like? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson was very difficult to work with. He was surrounded by a bunch of yes people. He had an entourage, which would, I mean, unbelievable. He had a manager who wanted uh, 18 bottles of champagne every night to fill up his bathtub so he could take champagne Come baths. on. Come on. No, no, no. I'm serious. Those I'm are serious. real. Champagne baths are real things. And when you get sticky, what's the deal there? How does the I soap work with that? <laughs> but, but going back, and, and Michael 
you know, he always demanded things. He, he didn't ask for things. He demanded things. And we had a few words together, and that's where Francis really could shine for me because I really took him on directly, and I said, no, I can't do this. And he'd say, but I told you to. And I said, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> we can't do this. And he was not used to people saying no to him. That's number one. Number two, um, he had an entourage of young kids always around him. And I'll leave that to where it is, but, uh, and I'll just show you how difficult he was. He came in four days before the show. On the second day before the show, he says, I need 200 little kids to surround me in my performance, and they're going to need water, food, and uh, poetries and all that kind of stuff, and their parents will be accompanying them. And I said, and where am I supposed to get these kids from? Uh, anyway, I managed to do it. Managed to have four crates of waters and food brought to these kids, and their mothers looked after. And this is like two days before the show, and I had a million other things to deal with, including two thousand journalists, sixteen uh, television crews, and forty-two artists. Artist-wise, these days, when you're looking at it, is it any different from the old days? I mean, what what are you looking at, and then how do you convince them of how hard they have to work? Or, or is there well, no convincing because you know how hard they have to work? It has to be sort well, of built in. I think with social media, it's a completely different world. Things move a lot quicker today than they did back then. I mean, everything is remotely digital and accessible and, you know, stopping piracy is a real problem. I mean, we didn't have all these problems. I mean, I had days at EMI in London with Paul McCartney where we'd sell half a million singles a day in England. <laughs> I mean, these were, you know, money in the bank. Let me let me and ask today, you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You don't have that. <laughs> All right. You, you mentioned the word things move faster. So it's faster and quicker. I think you answered oh, it absolutely. sort of. Is it better or worse? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that you don't, you're really not able to enjoy it, number one. Number two, you have to always be on the next page. You have to be ahead of the curve. You're, you're growing, you know, your time with your kids, and you moved back to Boonville, and, and what are they doing? Well, I, my daughter graduated from Boonville. They both did. Um, they both went to University of Mississippi. Lauren is now a nurse practitioner working at the University of Mississippi. Wow. And uh, Christelle lives in Memphis, and she is a mother with a wonderful grandson called Jake. And wow. Lauren has two kids called Hudson and Annabelle. And um, she's uh, she's a loving being in Mississippi. Yeah. So that so Memphis is really Mississippi too. You and I both know that the lines were. Well, I know that. Wrong. That's why I didn't say you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's on your what's on your agenda? Like, t take me through the the day in life of of Sir Fred Cannon today. Well, um, usually on a Monday and Tuesday, I'm doing a radio show, which I do all over the world on the internet called United DJs. And I have the Freddie Cannon Nashville show. I do two hours from Nashville, and uh, we have about 10 million hits wow. on the station. And we have all the best DJs from England, uh, Germany, Holland on this uh, radio station. Wow. There's about 45 of us. And we're the old timers who are bringing back great music. Wow. That's, oh, how can people find you? They can go to uniteddjs.com. I'm on at 7 a.m. on Friday morning, and uh, I'm on Facebook for Freddie Cannon Show. 
and they can find me there. Can you go back in the archives and listen to past shows? Oh, yeah, Mixcloud. Okay, cool. I love it. Love it. Yeah, go yeah. to udj.com and Mixcloud, and you can hear all the DJs and mm-hmm. all their shows. Wow, I love it. Well, I guess I'm, in some way I'm a DJ now. I have a talk radio show. and uh, Yes, you do, and you play music, too. Yeah, I still do. I, I, I need to do that. That pays the bills way more, but... That's but deep. Steve, I, I want to ask you something. Do you have any great songs for me? I know you do. You know I do. Send them to me. I'll send them. Send them to me. Oh, you got it. I'd love it. I'd be honored. Uh, we've been with the great Sir Fred Cannon. Uh, he's an opal, and as this show evolves and gives me the opportunity to reacquaint myself with my old friends, uh, life only gets better. Two Mississippi boys coming back together. I love it. Well, we'll see you later. Thanks for tuning in to Mississippi Minute, Sir Fred Cannon. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. With humble beginnings all the way back to 1943, Guarantee Bank has grown from offering the basic banking services and products to serving customers with a comprehensive, complete line of expertise and products only expected at much larger institutions. We are proud to be your local big-time bank. So when you're looking for a bank you can truly depend on and trust, and like me so many years ago trying to find my way around, let Guarantee Bank, with its 17 convenient locations, help you on your journey and become a wonderful addition to your family like they have mine for over 30 years. Guarantee Bank, member FDIC. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.